From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. If kids become dangerous, schools can restrain or isolate them as a last resort. And there are limits, but just how often do districts use these tactics? The picture is murky. What is clear, they're often used on young kids with disabilities. We'll discuss the findings of a chalkbeat investigation. Then, before she graduates, a high school student fights for better access to menstrual products on campus. It lands her a National Girl Scout Award. And later, the Soul Food Scholar is back. Denver food writer Adrian Miller tells the story of African Americans and barbecue in his new book, Black Smoke. It's a story intertwined with slavery, emancipation, entrepreneurship, and appropriation. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When a student is disruptive or violent, teachers in Colorado are supposed to try to de-escalate things. If that doesn't work, they can restrain or isolate a student within limits. But Chalkbeat senior reporter Melanie Asmar found some schools may be overstepping those limits and doing so with quite young students. Melanie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Give us a picture of what happens when teachers or staff isolate a child. This is also known as seclusion. Yeah, so a lot of schools have um, these rooms, and and different schools call them different things, um, like a quiet room or a calm-down room or a decompression room. And um, essentially, you know, students get get brought to these rooms, um, you know, ostensibly to, to calm down. And uh, staff are allowed to shut the door, but not lock it. Um, and yeah, and, and the room is supposed to be a space for students to calm down. But what I've heard from staff who, who work in these schools um, with these students, many of whom have disabilities, is that it doesn't always work out that way. And sometimes it can um, serve to sort of escalate the student even more. Because the student doesn't want to be isolated. That's a stressful situation, perhaps. And so things actually get worse in that condition? Yes, exactly, exactly. And then what about restraint? Just say a few words about that. Yeah, so restraint is like a physical hold on on a child. And the the state definition, so this isn't just like, you know, touching a child's arm or kind of, you know... um, uh, you know, sort of putting your hands on a child for for a few seconds. This is kind of like a, a physical hold that lasts several minutes. And, um, you know, there are several different sort of, um, you know, positions that people do these holds in. But sometimes what it looks like is an adult sort of stands behind a child and takes their wrists, the child's wrists, and sort of crosses their arms over their body, the child's arms over the child's body. So the, it's kind of looks like a bear hug a little bit with the adult standing behind the child. And this is to sort of, you know, immobilize the child if the adult feels like it's an emergency situation 
where the child is like a, an imminent threat to themselves or other children. And those are the circumstances under which this kind of procedure, restraint, or uh, for that matter, seclusion can be used. Uh, you tell the story of a principal who used restraint on an eight-year-old boy. Uh, just briefly, what happened? Yeah, so this was a situation where, um, uh, you know, the beginning of the day, the boy, he was in third grade, and um, he wasn't, you know, sort of following directions in class. He wasn't doing his classwork. Uh, he started ripping up papers and throwing them around the room, um, breaking pencils and throwing them. And, and the teacher tried to kind of calm him down, and that wasn't working. So the teacher called in the principal, um, who eventually ended up sort of um, picking the boy up kind of like under the boy's armpits with the principal's um, hands. And the principal ended up sort of taking the boy kind of um, in that position, sort of like half carrying him to the, the school's decompress room. Um, and the student was put in the decompress room. And on this day, like sometimes happens, the student didn't calm down. Um, he started throwing things around the room and slamming the door, um, you know, sort of shoving things in his, in his mouth. Um, he sort of, there was like an electrical box in the room with some metal conduit and he kind of like climbed up on the electrical box using the conduit and sort of like threw himself backwards. Um, and, and the principal, you know, felt like, you know, the child might, um, hurt himself. And so he put him in a series of holds. And the last time he put him in a hold, it was kind of that one I described where they crossed the wrists. And um, the principal said he he felt the student take a, a deep breath in, and then the student's body went limp. And um, he, the principal was calling the student's name, and the student wasn't answering. Um, you know, the student's eyes were fluttering, and the student was sort of salivating and foaming at the mouth. And the principal ended up calling 911 and the boy's mother. And the mother says that this incident had a pretty serious effect on this child's well-being. Um, I think that this particular case illustrates a few things. The boy was pretty young, and that seems to be when restraint and seclusion is most often used. Isn't that right? That is right. Yep. Um, it's most often used according to like these annual reports that school districts have to do most often used on young children. We're talking like young elementary students, kindergarten through maybe fourth, fifth grade. Um, and most often with students with disabilities. Um, and a lot of these students have, you know, what um, school districts call emotional disabilities. So difficulty like regulating their emotions, difficulty with impulse control, um, you know, the type of student who might start, throwing pencils around a room or something if they get frustrated. Right. I mean, these are potentially very dangerous situations for educators. I mean, you quote school officials who say that it could be cases of biting, cases of throwing punches, cases of throwing furniture in a classroom. Um, so your story really looks at these annual reviews that districts have to submit. So the, the state passed a law a few years ago meant to protect kids when these practices go too far. And it's worth noting that it set limits on prone restraint in particular, where a student is held face down on the ground. Um, but with these reports that districts must file, you found a lot of inconsistency, huh? And, and kind of murkiness, I guess. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of sort of 
shortcomings with these reports. So this 2017 law that was passed said districts had to do an annual report sort of accounting for all the restraints and seclusions they did during the school year. But the law doesn't say that they have to turn them in to anyone. So essentially, school districts write these reports and then um, they don't give them to any state agency. There is no oversight. Um, they exist. And um, I know because I did an open records request for them from the 10 largest Colorado districts, but, you know, the Colorado Department of Education doesn't collect them. No one sort of reads them and and looks over what the districts are doing. Essentially, the districts are sort of policing themselves. And then, you know, when cases like like this with this eight-year-old boy come up and there is some state oversight, in this case, the boy's family filed a state complaint saying that he had been restrained and secluded improperly. Um, And a state investigator looked into it. And when the state investigator looked into it, she also found that, um, you know, there were there were um, issues with the annual report that the school district filed, that it didn't include a full accounting of all the restraints and seclusions. It did not include this incident um, with where the boy lost consciousness. and so, yeah, there's there's wide variation in, in how districts do these reports. Some of them are very detailed. Some of them were like literally a couple of sentences. Some of them were filed late, as you note. Uh, my guest is Melanie Asmar, senior reporter at Shockbeat. And uh, she's been uh, lately reporting on how districts use and then report restraint and isolation with students. And her reporting finds that uh, these techniques are often used on young children with disabilities. Uh, I, I do wonder how this works with older kids in high school, you know, who are likely to be stronger. Yeah, I think um, I think in a lot of those cases, um, you know, there are um, school police officers in, in a lot of high schools. Um, and so sometimes if, if a student is, you know, sort of really... Um, uh, out of control, they will call in the, the school police officer. I also think that a lot of these behaviors um, that we're talking about maybe tend to happen with younger children, mm. um, you know, who are still learning emotional regulation and and impulse control and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's helpful to understand. What, uh, if I don't know if this was part of your reporting, what does the de-escalation look like that educators are supposed to use first? before these more extreme measures kick in? Yeah, I think best case scenario, it would be sort of tailored to the student. So districts that do this well, that have a low incidence of restraint and seclusion, um, you know, they, if, if they know a child has sort of an emotional disability, um, they will do an assessment and figure out like, what are this, what are sort of the triggers that might, um, you know, cause a child to become um, escalated or, uh, start throwing things around the room. Like, is it um, when we switch activities? Is it when every time we ask, every time we do math, because that's a subject that's really difficult for the child and they don't like doing math, they sort of start, you know, displaying some of these behaviors. So in a great situation, you would know what those triggers are and you would know sort of like how to navigate around them or how, um, you know, how how to avoid situations where the child becomes escalated um, if a child becomes escalated, one one method that I've heard advocates talk about a lot is instead of, you know, kind of physically carrying them out of the room, which, you know, you're putting yourself in a situation where you could get hurt or you could hurt the child, 
um, you kind of evacuate everybody else. So all the other students get up and leave the classroom and, you know, the student who's escalated stays in the classroom until they calm down. Hmm. Um, obviously that's disruptive to the class, but it, it would, you know, avoid potential um, injuries. Are there any whispers of changes now that your story has run in terms of, of just the transparency here? Because it's it's information. I mean, you talk about uh, doing a public records request. It's information I can imagine a parent wanting to know as they pick a school or pick a district or something like that, you know? Yeah, I think advocates and lawyers are, are hopeful, like lawyers who deal with um, a, a lot of these cases that do result in complaints and lawsuits. Um, you know, they're really hopeful there's some changes made. One of the other big flaws in the law is that, um, you know, even if you file a state complaint about restraint and seclusion and this Colorado Department of Education finds the district was at fault, um, they can only make recommendations uh, that the district make changes like more training or, um, you know, you need to do better reports. You need to inform parents when this happens. They can only make recommendations and it's up to the district whether they want to follow those recommendations. There, there sort of are no teeth in the law where the state can force a district to make changes, changes. and mm-hmm. or like withhold funding if a district doesn't make changes. So I think that's something that advocates and um, families would really love to see changed. And in and, and just a few seconds here, we have to wrap up. But Melanie, I, I don't hear you saying that it's never appropriate to use these techniques, uh, but that one should be aware of how often they're being used in a district, how transparent a district is is being. Um, in just a few seconds, is, is that a good characterization? Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest thing is that these are only supposed to be used as a last resort in an emergency situations, and that doesn't always happen. Melanie Asmar, senior reporter at Shockbeat. Pads and tampons aren't a guarantee in high school restrooms. Estimates are that one in five girls miss school because they lack access to menstrual products. Well, a student at Arvada West High School decided to take action, and her campaign reached the state capitol. It also landed her a National Girl Scout Award. And Julia Trujillo, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, let's start with your experience at Arvada West, what you witnessed there. I understand that menstrual products were only available through the nurse's office. What what issues did that create for students? Yeah, well, this was something that I think was unknown to most of our students. And we did. We released a culture survey that found that uh, the vast majority of our students didn't know that these period products were stored in a nurse. And I felt like it really just gave this um, association with a period of being like a public event or um, something that shouldn't be handled in the privacy of a restroom when like that's what it should be because it's just a normal bodily function. So like students shouldn't have to ask their their teachers and sort of endure that that like stigma shame aspect for for something so essential. I think what I hear you saying is one, students didn't even know that they were available in the nurse's office, mm-hmm. and two, you're saying that wasn't the ideal place. Right. Yeah. Last year, you worked with your local state representative, Brianna Titone of Arvada, on the creation of a menstrual hygiene products in schools program. And uh, it would have offered grants for schools to provide free products and uh, presumably in more accessible places. Why did legislation seem like the right route? 
Um, I think just after the the amount of obstacles that I had to go through in my own school to to get these um, period products and dispensers, I just realized that it was it was such a bigger endeavor than it needed to be, and that um, like every student would have to go through that that same uh, battle of hoops with all of these different district mandates and things like that of how to get um, products in their own schools. So I thought that legislation, just addressing it on like a bigger scale would be the best way to make sure that like the most vulnerable people got these products who don't have like the time or resources to dedicate to um, running an entire campaign to get, you know, hygiene products in their restrooms. This was an uphill battle, in other words, on your campus. Mm -hmm. Very much. Yeah. What were some of the obstacles you ran into? Um, we just, we've received a lot of pushback from our administration in general. Uh, a lot of things that we heard were that there wasn't enough funding, that it wasn't really a priority, that, um, it was kind of just like a silly cause in general. And it, it took a lot of convincing and we had to get an endorsement from our PTA and just different district, um, organizations to sort of like prove that this was, um, like a, a an issue worth, uh, solving and like, Yeah. So the bill that I mentioned, creating this products in schools program, it died because of fiscal concerns in the pandemic. Uh, I will say Representative Tatone says that she's pursuing it again this year, thanks in no small part to you and your classmates. Uh, And there has been opposition. Uh, The Jefferson County Republican Party posted on Facebook that the bill went too far, just quoting here. Yep, you heard that right. Now even feminine hygiene products should be free and the government should provide them, Uh, end quote. Why do you think this is the government's role? Yeah, I think that, I don't know, we have this kind of like hyper individual problem in our culture in a lot of ways. And we don't look at the fact that we, I don't know, we provide these like basic hygiene necessities for minors because they shouldn't be um, expected to like pay or or carry them if they don't have them uh, by themselves. We don't expect students to carry toilet paper everywhere they go because that's ridiculous. And it's like a, a universal need that we can all see. But I think that if everybody menstruated, then we would see period products in every public restroom. Um, and I think that we should because, yeah, I don't think that we should be expecting um, minors to be able to to like provide for these things for themselves when they when they don't have the the means or the resources, especially in low income areas. And did you see that at Arvada West, just uh, classmates who simply didn't have that kind of access? Yeah, um, the, like at the culture survey that I mentioned, it was I think 76 percent of our students had uh, reported leaving or um, missing an entire day of school because of lack of access. And that could be just being unprepared, but um, it could also be, you know, financial uh, means not having the means to to have or to afford period products because lots of um, homeless and low income women uh, will have to make uh, the choice between period products or a meal. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's uh, not something, not a choice that a student sh- or, or any person for that matter should have to make, I think. Julia Trujillo, have you found there's stigma around this issue? And if so, have you felt that stigma? Definitely. Um, this, I mean, there's just so much shame and embarrassment associated with like asking for a period product when you don't have one when you're in school, especially as a as a young girl. And there's just this lack of discussion and awareness, I think, generally. Um, and it was just really interesting to see like grown adults that I spoke to from 
uh, who were like representatives or even within my own school administration would like struggle to say the word tampon without, I don't know, snickering almost. And it's, hmm. it's this, it's, I don't know, it's crazy that, yeah, people, it's, it's, I don't know, something that is so, so shameful still because it's, it goes so undiscussed, but it's just like a normal facet of life and the human body for sure. How would you respond when that was the reply from people, when it was a, a kind of snickering or a hushed tone? Um, I guess I would just sort of uh, urge them to to look inward and consider like what it is about about this uh, normal part of the human body that's making them so uncomfortable and like where those associations come from, because that's really what we should be looking at when we when we consider like why we don't see this as a priority um, to to provide these products for people who menstruate. And, um, yeah. So paint for me the ideal picture. What what would it look like on a high school campus if uh, young women had unfettered access? Like what what would that look like? A, a dispenser or something? Yeah, I think the ideal situation would be to have. Um, dispensers in student restrooms where they're like accessible where students don't need to like uh ask for explicit permission it's just as simple as going to the restroom and having the ones that we installed in my school were like a free you just press a button and it dispensed them and also ideally it would be great um i guess this the whole the whole project sort of goes hand in hand with gender neutral bathrooms as well because obviously um cisgendered women aren't the only people who experience menstruation so I guess sort of having those those uh, gender neutral bathrooms is um, sort of the first step, but having the um, period products in in both girls' restrooms and those gender neutral bathrooms for um, free dispensers would be the ideal situation. I think you are one of ten young women nationally to win a Girl Scouts Gold Award, which comes with a college scholarship and speaking engagements. Um, and now, after I think like a COVID gap year. You mm-hmm. are headed to Willamette University in Oregon, and uh, I wonder what you plan to study. Yeah, the the Gold Award was such an honor, so such an incredible experience. Um, but I'm planning on majoring in politics and policy at Willamette. Very excited to to get further into the kind of legislative world and learn more. In other words, your exposure to the legislative world in Colorado, I guess, it was positive enough that you want to keep going down that path. Yeah, it definitely inspired me to 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 see that I guess I have the the ability within myself to like make change in that sphere, which was something that I really wasn't uh, ever expecting for my own life. But it's very exciting to to be on that path. Do you think there are other issues that you'll take on? What else is on your radar? Um. Oh boy, so much. <laughs> I, we I only have a, we say... only have a minute, by the way. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I feel like the world that my, my generation was left with is sort of a broken one in a lot of ways. And there's, there's so many pressing issues from climate change to just the, I don't know, an economic disparities in our world. And that's something that I personally, um, am very passionate about is like closing that insane, um, wealth gap in our country. Cause I think it's egregious and, yeah, I would love to like dedicate my my life to sort of making a more equitable world for for all kinds of people from all communities. Julia, thanks for your time. Good luck at Willamette. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 19-year-old Julia Trujillo of Arvada is fighting for better access to menstrual products. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the soul food scholar. He's been on a barbecue kick lately. And when I say lately, I mean virtually his whole life. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
A family intervention is a desperate effort to save someone who's in the throes of addiction. And it doesn't always work, even when your family name is Biden. I just said, screw this. And my dad ran after me and just started to cry. I said, okay, dad, I'm gonna go get help. I'll do it tonight. And I had no intention whatsoever to do what I just told him. How Hunter Biden found his way out of crack addiction on the season finale of Back From Broken, wherever you get your podcasts. A dream come true. That's how Denver food writer Adrian Miller describes the ad he saw in the newspaper. The offer was to become a judge, a barbecue judge. So he signed up, took an oath. Yes, there's an oath. And his badge came in the mail. So this was in 2004. And now, almost two decades later, Miller is thoroughly steeped, maybe I should say marinated, in barbecue. His new book is Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. And Adrian, welcome back to the program. Oh, so good to be with you. In addition to being a soul food scholar, I should mention for transparency's sake that you're a member of CPR's board of directors. But uh, we've got to start with this barbecue judge oath (laughs) with the Kansas City Barbecue Society. You don't reveal it in the book. Will you tell us the oath here, Adrian Miller? I will not because it's a sacred thing, and I can already tell that some of your listeners will mock it, and so I will not repeat that now. You have to go through the process. So after seeing this ad in the now-defunct Rocky Mountain News, you headed over to the Adams County Fairgrounds, I think, to train as a barbecue judge. What stood out to you about that experience? Well, the first thing is, um, I have to say right away, it's the best conversation starter I've ever had. I mean, people are like, oh, you worked in the White House? That's cool. But I want, you're a barbecue judge? I want to talk to you about that. So the first thing when I walked in, as the kids say, I was the only dude under 250, which is (laughs) 250 pounds. So I saw my future. But, you know, I was willing to go through it because at that time I, I knew I was writing about soul food. And so many soul food restaurants have a barbecue option on the menu. And then so many black run barbecue joints have soul food side dishes. So I thought, well, let me learn more about barbecue to inform soul food. So that's really why I did it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what they do is they go through the categories, pork, which is usually pork shoulder, pork spare ribs, beef, which is usually brisket, chicken, which is usually chicken thighs. And then uh, you judge it on taste, texture, and appearance, nine-point scale. Taste, texture, Texture. and appearance. Yes. Appearance matters. That's interesting to me. I I have to think that uh, as much as I love barbecue, I don't think of it as a necessarily telegenic food. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, yes. It, but I, I guess I have to depart from that now because if you're on Instagram or TikTok now, <laughs> yeah. it's all about yeah, it's all about how it looks. Yeah, yes. Yeah. OK. You write in the book Black Smoke that you didn't see many other black barbecue judges, despite a long history of African-American barbecue. And this idea of black visibility in barbecue is really at the heart of the new book. You call attention to a 2004 TV special you saw, which seems like a pivotal moment. Yes. Now, whether you like your barbecue basted or brown, sizzled or seared, We're going to hit the road for the mother of all barbecue events in Memphis, Tennessee, home of Elvis, and where everyone agrees, pork is king. Tell me what you noticed about this Paula Dean special back in 04. Well, I was really excited to watch it because I thought, okay, here's a chance to just find out the latest of what's going on in barbecue in the South. And then an hour later, when the credits are rolling, my mouth is agape because no African-Americans had been interviewed 
for that special. There were some in the background doing stuff, but no one made it on air. And I thought, well, how does this happen first? And then the second thing I thought, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue, and I just didn't pay close attention to the ad. (laughs) But it was definitely (laughs) Southern. Southern. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And so that spurred me to just look at other uh, aspects of food media. And what I found is that the people who decide what food stories get told about barbecue were not including African-Americans. And that did not square with my experience because barbecue is a huge part of black food culture. And anybody who looks at U.S. history, especially with barbecue, would know that African-Americans have made significant contributions to the cuisine. So I was like, how do we get pushed to the sidelines? To tell the history of barbecue in the United States is also to tell the story of slavery and emancipation and black entrepreneurship and co-opting, as you've said there. Tell us about uh, Mary Jean or Marie-Jean. Yeah, Marie-Jean. So fascinating uh, character that I found in, in my research. So she was an enslaved woman, 1840s Arkansas, in a place called Arkansas Post, which was one of the earliest European settlement in that area. It went through French, Spanish, and then, you know, English. So, you know, very multinational. Um, and so there's a newspaper article about her superintending a barbecue. That was the language at that point for being a pitmaster. So picture that, man. You got a black woman enslaved telling dudes what to do with the barbecue. She eventually buys her freedom. Uh, and I believe it's because she was hired out to generate income for these barbecues, right? And then she ends up running a restaurant in Arkansas Post. And when she dies in the 1850s, the white newspaper eulogizes her. Now, there's some racism thrown in there, but mm. they put it on par with the great restaurateurs of the era. That would have been unusual. Very unusual. To see an obituary like that. To see an obituary, to name her, to praise her. All three of those things coming together. Um, and then to have a woman in the mix with barbecue. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Do you think that barbecue skews male or does just the story of barbecue, as it's told, misperceive that? I would say overall in the sweep of history, barbecue skews male uh, with white majority culture. In black culture, black women have been in the barbecue game from the earliest days. So I think there's a difference there that plays out kind of just in, a, in racial dynamics. But uh, overall, the way the barbecue is presented, man, it just seems like an old boys club. Uh, it's very, very male. I want to pause here to acknowledge that barbecue is also rooted in Native American culinary traditions. And you write that you often get a double take when you share that. Yeah, because I think because African-Americans so dominated barbecue, a lot of people believe black folks invented it. And believe me, I wanted to prove that, right? Because I wanted to put an X across my chest, shout Wakanda forever, right? Because we <laughs> invented barbecue. But, uh, you know, when you look at the early history, clearly there was something that Europeans saw when they came to the Americas that was different than the kind of cooking, meat cooking they were used to. Mm. That was called barbecue. And eventually Europeans melded their kind of quick grilling techniques onto the slow smoking traditions of Native Americans, because in addition to, uh, you know, immediate feasting, um, a lot of barbecue was about preserving meat for later use. Oh, is that where smoking comes in? Yeah. So really, it was really slow, a slow fire Uh smoking over direct smoking, not indirect, direct smoking over several days. Sometimes it could be several days, but usually it was about a day. Now, does the word barbecue come from Spanish barbacoa? That's the, uh, so the, the kind of the explanation I've always heard is that the Spanish tried to approximate the word the indigenous people were using 
for at first it was just the frame. It wasn't really the meat or the process. It was just this frame, the raised platform. That's what a barbecue was. And you see that word used throughout the Americas, not just in the Caribbean. And then eventually it becomes barbacoa and that becomes not only the noun for the food, but also the event and the process. Okay, so the term is probably born in indigenous cultures as well. Right, okay. yeah, it's trying an approximation and then the English approximation is barbecue. You know, what you're getting at uh, indirectly there is how hard it is to tell the really early story of barbecue because it's largely an unwritten story, right? It's unwritten, and you talk about hazy, <laughs> it's definitely unwritten. And unfortunately, the people who did the early writing weren't very accurate with what they were doing. Um, so, you know, because they were grappling for how to describe this new cooking process that they hadn't really seen before. And so they applied European words to a cooking process that was kind of different. And so, and it, it's just really sloppy in the early history. The Soul Food Scholar, the James Beard Book Award winning author, Adrian Miller, is our guest. And his new book is Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue. You profile several Coloradans in this book. Uh, before we talk about them, I want to read this excerpt from the introduction. Quote, I pause now to share something that usually, usually loses me all street cred on the subject of barbecue. I was born in Denver, Colorado and raised in one of its suburbs. Adrian Miller, why the need for such a preface? Because uh, I know that people are going to come at me when I gave this barbecue history, especially because I'm saying things that maybe a lot of people haven't heard. Oh. And so, you know, I, I knew that that was going to be the immediate crit criticism. Like, what do you know, man? From Colorado, yeah. right? Uh -huh. yeah. So I, after that, I quickly established my Southern bloodlines. My mother's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad's from Helena, Arkansas. So this was the food tradition I grew up, even in a place like Denver. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you think of, I don't know, just like really distinctive regional styles of barbecue, Texas, Kansas City, North Carolina. Do you think Colorado has anything close to a style? I think we had the, the seedlings of a style uh, and we got away from it. Because if oh. you go back, yeah, if you go back several decades, we were known for lamb and bison. Uh, in fact, if you go to a knowledgeable butcher today and ask for a Denver rack, you're going to get lamb ribs. Uh, and so uh, I think that we could retap that and maybe even create a tradition now. I'd be excited for that. We could create our own signature lamb and bison dishes. Um, so we used to have one, but we just got away from it. Interesting. Yeah. So a Denver rack was lamb ribs. Yes. And then did you know anything about the kind of barbecue sauces here? No, I don't. Because yeah. uh, that's one of the things that you don't see a lot of description of. It's more people talk about the meat, mm -hmm. maybe some of the side dishes. And it may be because the barbecuers in the past are like the ones today. They're not giving up the goods when it comes to describing the sauce. <laughs> we have to talk about the late Bruce Randolph Sr., Daddy Bruce. There's a street named after him in Denver, a school as well. And I think of him as a barbecue humanitarian. Mm -hmm. He was also the official caterer of the Denver Broncos. Uh, you write that he flew down to Super Bowl 78 with ribs, hams, and briskets for yeah. the team. Yeah. He starts out, though, with restaurants in Texas. Tell us about the loan he gets once he arrives in Colorado. Yeah, so this benefactor, and this is huge, because again, at, at a time when 
Um, you know, the, I think the most consistent complaint of black entrepreneurs is lack of access to capital. To capital. And someone lends him money so he can get started in business. And I just thought that was fascinating. I didn't know that story. Because uh, I think one of the reasons why a lot of black entrepreneurs went into barbecue, because it's really a low bar- barrier to entry. Um, some of the most storied barbecue restaurants that we know of today started with somebody just digging a hole in their yard. Or, a true pit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And cooking one pig. And is cooking it and then whatever they sold, you know, they would just sell until they got rid of that one pig. And it was only later that people started doing multiple things, right? Um, but that was easy to do. And health code regulations weren't as uh, stringent as they are today. I don't, I don't see anybody being able to do that today. So what does Daddy Bruce buy with this, this loan? So um, one of the things that he does is uh, he gets, you know, he gets, gets, he gets his equipment so that he can start out. Um, I can't remember if he got actual uh, a building at that point. I know that comes later, but it, it, all the necessary stuff that he needs to get started. So, yeah. And he had been cooking barbecue in Texas, brings right. it to Colorado. Right. But speak to his humanitarian side. It's a really important aspect of his life. I think probably more people know him for his humanitarian side. And, and the biggest thing was just giving away uh, food on Thanksgiving to thousands of people. And uh, he actually made national news for that. Uh, he was in the Los Angeles Times, uh, other national newspapers for, um, his, the, you know, just the care that he showed to everybody. And he always would say, you know, God loves you and so does Daddy Bruce, right? That was mm. one of his signature. And that's why I put him in the church chapter. Even though he wasn't clergy, he was a very uh, spiritual, religious man who lived out his faith. We'll talk a little bit more about the connection between church and barbecue in a moment. But um, as Daddy Bruce fed throngs of people, we should note that earlier in Colorado history, there's a man named Columbus B. Hill, and you call him a legendary barbecue man in the West. He actually supervised the barbecue at the laying of the cornerstone for the state capitol on July 4th, 1890. But demand for his food exceeded supply. What's the story of Columbus B. Hill? So Columbus B. Hills from West Tennessee, and a lot of West Tennesseans start barbecue scenes in other parts of the country. Uh, and he shows up in Denver late 1870s, and I believe it's because of his older brother, a famous waiter named Mohican B. Hill. And um, pretty much in the early 80s, 1880s, he's doing barbecues for ten, five to 10,000 people. Wow. 1882, there was something called the Denver Merchants Barbecue, which was a big deal, written about in all the newspapers. And it was a free free meal for people. So uh, he spends the rest of that decade burnishing his reputation. He does this um, July 4th, 1890 barbecue. 25,000 people show up in front of the Capitol for this barbecue. Hungry. Hungry. Now, they managed to feed a lot of the people, but not everyone. Um, But it was a better result than when he did the stock show in 1898, because that was another deal where there was food for only 5,000, but 30,000 showed up. And there was actually a food riot. The lack of barbecue. Right. Well, fueled by also somebody thought it would be a good idea to f- give out free beer from Zhang Brewery. They thought oh. that would chill people out. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Exact opposite. And so Columbus B. Hill, I believe he's buried at Denver's Riverside Cemetery. Yes. But in an unmarked grave? Yes. I found his unmarked grave a couple years ago, and I was in the process of raising money to get a headstone, but then the pandemic hit, and so that put a halt to that. So after we you know, get back to being more open. I'm going to start that up and I'm going to have a ceremony to give him a proper proper send off. 
Just eye-opening to know the Coloradans deeply involved in barbecue. Uh, I think it may pierce people's perceptions of barbecue in this state. Let's take a break. We can talk more about African-American barbecue and the church. My guest is the soul food scholar Adrian Miller. His new book is Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States Barbecue. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. I'm Joe Wirtz, editor of CPR's climate team, and we're focused on deeply researched, comprehensive coverage about the environment in and affecting Colorado. You already hear this work on your radio. Now you can also get it in your inbox. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting on the impact, solutions, and political aspects of climate change. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, we're not trying to make you hungry, though that may be the effect of our current segment. We are joined by the soul food scholar Adrian Miller, whose new book is Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. And uh, in this book, Adrian, you write that the black church was arguably the first autonomous institution shaped by African-Americans in the United States. What's the connection to barbecue? Yeah, I, 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 couldn't, I don't know exactly why there's a correlation between preaching the word of God and smoking meat, but it's there. <laughs> uh, a lot of black pastors, uh, preachers uh, do barbecue, and they usually do it as a hobby, but there are quite a few who have it as a kind of a side business affiliated with their church. And it's a way to raise funds for the church as well. And um, sometimes it's people in the congregation that start the barbecue tradition. And I have to tell you, uh, personally, barbecue has been distracting to my own spiritual journey. Uh, Yeah, you know, when I'm studying scripture and I see the story of the burning bush um, with Moses, I wonder, did it smell like hickory? (laughs) Oak, maybe mesquite? You know, the the prophecy about the valley of the dry bones, was it spare ribs? You know. (laughs) That's just me. I know I need counseling. Uh, oh, we're going to get emails for your sacrilege here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So you see that uh, going back to the days of slavery, um, enslaved people often uh, got together with barbecue. And it was also a time for building community and also, uh, you know, a time of spiritual practice. And uh, it's interesting because in addition to kind of the barbecue on the plantation, periodically there would be these things, these revivals or camp meetings that would be several days. And they would be preaching all day long. And preachers figured out that barbecue would bring a crowd, right? Mm. So they would have barbecue on the side. And so that added to the spiritual dimension, um, you know, and connected barbecue with good times, but also spiritual practice, building community. Did you see this in your own church growing up? Yeah. So in my own church, we had every year, we had something called Men's Day. And usually right around Men's Day, we would have a barbecue. Um, Basically, we would cook ribs and sell them. And we had some legendary barbecuers in my church. John John Frank Garth and Willie Chenault were kind of the two uh, head guys in my church that would barbecue. And we would sell ribs. And so that was definitely a part of our tradition. And then we would have a church picnic later in the year. And barbecue would certainly be a part of that. Uh, A few kind of rapid fire questions. You have plenty of recipes in this book for hot honey sauce, barbecue brisket, banana pudding. Uh, But for those of us who don't want, like, everything from scratch, (laughs) we don't have to do that. 
What do you think is the best commercially available barbecue sauce? Man, I am a huge fan of Gates. Gates. Gates barbecue sauce out of Kansas City. I just love the taste of it. Um, And that's my favorite commercial sauce. Now, is that like more of a vinegary or a sugary? It's more sugary. So it's tomato-based. Uh, tomato-based, right. Yeah, ch- tomato. And I, I don't know if they have sugar or molasses, but a sweet tomato-based sauce that's a little thick, uh, that's more typifies Kansas City sauces. Gates. Mm-hmm. And you're not on their payroll. I am not I'm on their payroll. I'm just saying, yeah. for transparency's sake, <laughs> yes. Adrian Miller. That's important. Uh, do you have a favorite Colorado barbecue joint? Uh, my ultimate favorite closed, and that was Boney's Smokehouse. Um, but uh, on my website, I have uh, a whole thing of barbecue restaurants that I like, and people can go there. But some of my t- favorites are Roaming Buffalo, uh, and they are one of the few joints that are doing lamb and bison. So in I that Colorado tradition, yeah, in that Colorado tradition. What was it again? Rome, Roaming Buffalo. Barbecue. Roaming Buffalo. Yeah, location in Denver, and also uh, in Golden. I also like Owl Bear. You know, hoot hoot, growl growl, all one word. I don't know if you ever played Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't. Oh, okay. Um, Albear. Albear. It's a it's an homage to one of the mythical creatures. But um, he is actually a guy who worked at Franklin Barbecue, which is probably the most famous barbecue joint in the U.S. It's the place in Austin, Texas, where people line up for four hours. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned that your favorite or previous favorite barbecue joint closed. Yes. I want to ask just about how these businesses have done in the pandemic, whether they were facing obstacles even going in to COVID-19. Yeah. Well, running a restaurant is just challenging anyway. And um, a lot of Black-owned businesses were facing challenges because of gentrification. Um, So rents were going up, things like that. What I have noticed just across the country is the places that had a primarily a takeout model, they are doing all right. Mm -hmm. It's the ones that had a heavy uh, dining. Yeah, those are the ones that got hit hard. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And if you're just joining us, my guest is Denver food writer, the soul food scholar, Adrian Miller. His new book is Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. Uh, wasn't your full-time, first full-time job at a barbecue restaurant in, That's right. in Aurora? That's right. Luther's Barbecue. Uh, it was off Havana. And so that I was a dish, you know, I was like a busser dishwasher. So that was my first job. And, and no longer open, Luther's. Right. It burned down in the 90s. And you write that that's a fate too common for such enterprises, burning down. Yeah, if you're doing it the old school way, uh, a lot of places have fires. Um, Franklin Barbecue, which I mentioned, had a fire a couple years ago. Some very prominent barbecue joints uh, destroyed by fire. In fact, recently, one of the oldest barbecue joints, especially black-owned barbecue joints in the country, in Mariana, Arkansas, was a place called Jones Barbecue, uh, burned down. And so they're in the process of building. Now the, they, they are rebuilding. They are rebuilding. I take comfort in that. Yeah. I think the the challenge or why it's happening less often today is there are few people, fewer people doing it the old fashioned way. And what do you mean when you say the old fashioned way? Well, I mean like having an actual pit, yeah. burning down wood, you know, uh, all that grease and all that kind of stuff on the grill. A lot of people are using gas smokers now. And so uh, and part of that is for volume. Does that compromise quality? Is it just less tasty? It it still tastes good, um, but it's not. It doesn't have that added kind of charcoal taste for me that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still tastes good, and the reason they're doing it is for volume. And what's interesting is they're faking the funk. They're they're trying to convince people that they're doing it. You, the old... Wait, we have to say that again. They're faking <laughs> the funk. Yes, and the way they're doing that is they're trying to convince people they're doing it the old school way by piling wood outside. 
the weight that they don't actually use. Right. It's like prop wood. Yes. What is a question you were unable to answer about barbecue? Uh, I was not able to really fully answer how barbecue went from Native Americans to African Americans because this the the gap in that process um, just was not well documented. Yeah. So I really wanted to show that through line. So I give you know I give an educated uh, look at that, but I wanted to just show some through lines there. Adrian, you write in the introduction about sometimes smelling like barbecue. So this happened at least once when you worked at the state capitol as a senior policy analyst for Governor Bill Ritter. Yes. So to wrap up, have you learned to embrace smelling like barbecue? Only in certain circumstances. I just, I'm still, I'm not convinced that it's good to smell like barbecue on a first date if the person doesn't know you. (laughs) Uh, Name one essential side before we go. Oh, potato salad. Okay. Boy, you didn't hesitate there. Oh, no. Potato salad. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you. Thank you. Adrian Miller of Denver, also known as the Soul Food Scholar, is the author of Black Smoke, African Americans and the United States of Barbecue. I have tweeted a mouth-watering recipe for Memphis-style chicken, the rub and the sauce. My handle is at CPR Warner. And Adrian put together a barbecue playlist for us, which you can find on the CPR News Spotify account. I'll also add that to my Twitter feed in a couple seconds here. I'll reiterate for transparency's sake that Adrian Miller is a member of the CPR Board of Directors. I want to sit at the welcome table. Yes, I, I want to sit at the welcome table. And I'm, I'm going to sit at the welcome table. Sit at the welcome table, see that beautiful city, one of these days, one of these, whoo! Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that keeps Colorado Matters cooking. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Claire Cleveland. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. One of these days, one of these days, one of these days, one of these days.